Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Today we are talking about women in the construction industry. And uh, you might be wondering, what women in the construction industry? There are a couple. Yeah. Here here and there, there are some women in construction. And I, I didn't expect the statistics to be quite as depressing as they ended up being. Not only the small numbers, but basically what women at every level of construction have to deal with. Yeah, it's tough out there for women in construction. And I have a feeling that the numbers would be higher if the kinds of barriers that we're going to talk about weren't so prevalent. But before we get into the dismal stuff, Caroline, can I tell an Aunt Kristen anecdote that this episode reminded me of? Please. So I was playing charades or charades, Uh as some people call it, um, a few (laughs) years ago with my niece and nephews. And my niece was pretty young and she also had wedding wabbits, which which you'll see in the impression I'm about to do. And I was prompting her for she, she needed help with what to charade or charade. And I, you know, pulled her aside and whispered in her ear. I was like, why don't you pretend to be a princess or a model? I gave her what, which, come on, Kristen, what are you doing? I know, what are you doing there? Yeah, feeding into some gender stereotyping. And she turned it around on me. She got so frustrated and she stomped her foot and she said, Aunt Kristen, (laughs) I don't want to be a model. I want to be a construction worker. (laughs) And I was like, well, there we go. Good for her. By all means. That's great. Here is your pantomimed hammer. Go for it. <laughs> she wanted to be a construction worker. I love that so much. Yeah. Well, I feel like we need more girls and women stomping their foot and saying that they want to be construction workers because 
frankly, as it stands now and has stood for a very long time, uh, construction, the construction industry and the whole field in general doesn't just have a leaky pipeline in terms of other like STEM jobs that we've talked about. But I mean, the whole pipeline is clogged. Yeah. And some people might be wondering, well, why encourage people to go into construction? Well, for women, especially, it's a really lucrative field. Mm hmm. So let's let's go into the past first, because uh, you uncovered a really fascinating historical tidbit about women in construction. Yeah, this is coming from a 2011 paper called Women in Construction, an Early Historical Perspective. And I love this paper. It really walks you through hundreds and hundreds of years of construction history. And they write that for 500 years, building craftsmen or master craftsmen have always been thought of as men, probably because while women were likely working on those early modern construction sites, so to speak, it really wasn't actually socially acceptable to write about their labor as work, especially uh, wage earning work, not only because women were considered too weak to do such work, such labor, but it was also considered immoral for women to earn a wage. Plus, of course, they were supposed to be home anyway. Yeah, hence we have craftsmen, not craftswomen. That's right. Um, and the earliest mention, though, of women construction workers comes from the 13th century in Spain. There is a mention of female day laborers working on stone or wood structures. And who were the kinds of women who would be working back on ancient construction sites? Well, they were usually single or very poor married women, or they were slaves. Because women who did work in these kinds of occupations were considered essentially one step above prostitutes. And at the time, poverty and and the need for them to work outside the home was often seen as a punishment for their sinful nature. But at least they got exercise. Yeah. Work with your hands. Hey. Hey. You might be considered a prostitute and like a dirty, dirty, poor person, but at least you got to move around. That is a... uh, that's a, that's a glass half full perspective on slavery. I will say that oh, on, on ancient slavery. Oh Lord. Well, okay. Um, so what kind of things did they do? These unskilled laborers? What did these women do? They did things like carrying water, digging ditches for foundation walls, thatching roofs and mixing mortar. So really, really exciting stuff. But the thing is, even back then, there were class distinctions in terms of women getting involved in construction and building and manual labor of this type, because sometimes middle class ladies actually did get the chance to learn a trade legitimately, thanks to their husbands or their fathers. Many city records of the time actually show women working with husbands and fathers as masons, carpenters, door makers, and other types of crafting in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries in France. Spain and Germany. But of course, if these middle class women were, say, door makers, they would make still about half as much of what their male contemporaries would make or as much as young boys working for masters would make. Yeah. And then when we get the guild system, which is uh, basically membership that's passed down along a male line, 
that basically halts any type of, whether it's a poor woman working for wages or an upper class woman learning a skilled trade from her father or husband, that, that basically goes by the wayside. Yeah, and it's really not until the 1970s that we have this greater initiative to get more women into construction, recognizing construction as a potential field for women to earn a a rather handsome wage. And how would they be earning money in construction today? Well, construction offers a lot of variety because you might be working on a new project or an addition, an alteration, or doing maintenance and repairs. Yeah, and these companies or construction workers are working on things like uh, constructing buildings or engineering projects like highways and utility systems. They might be prepping a site for new construction or subdividing land for sale as building sites. And the large majority of these jobs in the industry, though, are for private industry as opposed to something like doing a federal government project. And for a snapshot of what construction employment looks like today, we've gathered some stats from OSHA and the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which site working as construction laborers is the most common job that you'll get, followed by, in order, carpenters, electricians, operating engineers, and other construction equipment operators. So bulldozer drivers, which Woo! seems like a pretty fun job, or, or driving a bobcat. Yeah. I would like to spend a day driving a bobcat around. I remember when I was very little and my parents were having some construction done at the house and uh, my dad was on the phone um, talking to somebody about getting a bobcat out there. My mother, being my mother, very much so, from the other room was like, who's bobcat? <laughs> <laughs> that comedian bobcat gold waste coming out. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, in addition... Um, You could also be a construction manager. Obviously, there are fewer of them, and they're making the most money out of everybody. And so when we look at the average pay for all workers, and these are projected numbers uh, as of January 2015, construction workers make an average hourly earning of $26.98, and they work an average of 38.9 hours a week. But when you take those supervisory employees out, the earnings drop to twenty four ninety one an hour, and the average hours worked actually increased slightly to thirty nine point three. And being a union member helps. Construction is a highly unionized industry, and members tend to earn the most per week, followed by workers represented by unions, which means you're not a paying union member, but your job is covered by a union contract. And then in last place are non-union workers. And there is a pretty wide pay gap between construction managers and construction laborers, uh, with managers earning more than $91,000 a year and laborers averaging about $35,000 a year. And it's a really risky job, not surprisingly. It has one of the highest fatality rates, and this is uh, in 2013 in the United States, there were 824 reported fatalities related to construction work with a rate of 3.8 recorded cases of injury or illness per 100 full-time workers, which is quite high. Yeah. And I mean, you've also got to imagine that there are things that aren't being reported too. You yeah. know, you bang your head, you get a concussion, and you're like, I'm fine. I'm just going to shake it off, man. Well, and also with the fact that construction work relies heavily on un- undocumented labor, too, those numbers would probably go even higher. That's true. And that leads us to talking a little bit more about the industry itself in terms of how the workforce is growing and changing. And estimates for how many people are 
employed in the construction industry fall between 6.3 and 7.1 million people. But construction employment overall is down 19 percent in the U.S. from its 2007 peak. And this was pointed out in an article from The Atlantic in February of 2015. It talks about basically how the industry was hit really hard by the recession, as you can imagine, building projects slow. But there is also the issue of Latino workers historically making up a huge chunk of the construction industry and a large number left during that recession. You know, not as much work is available. And whereas others, many other construction workers ended up seeking employment in other industries and or went back to school. And while the Bureau of Labor Statistics does expect that things are going to turn around somewhat, that the construction industry will be one of the fastest growing sectors through 2022, there's still a problem in terms of not being able to attract enough skilled laborers to fill those spots that are gradually opening up. And so what is an excellent solution broadening the labor pool and turning to women? This is what happened during World War II. But of course, after World War II, those jobs went right back to men. But the industry is trying to develop their pipelines to attract more and better skilled workers. But a lot of these efforts are long term because in addition to requiring things like mentoring people when they are young, cultivating them in these trades, it also taps into things like immigration reform that obviously moves slower than a construction project a lot of times. Right. And so the National Association for Women in Construction's Image magazine from spring 2014 wrote about this issue in terms of, hey, you guys have an employment gap? Let's hire more women. And they cite the example of Masco uh, Contractor Services, who are making a concerted effort to attract and retain women specifically. And their efforts include publishing ads that really put a focus on the company's safety culture, competitive salaries and benefits like tuition reimbursement, company match retirement program, paid training, paid vacations and holidays, and especially flexible work hours. And one manager even pointed out that he relies on women more so than men to do a lot of the so-called detail-oriented work that customers will notice right away. Hmm. I mean, that all of the stuff that they're advertising sounds like a pretty good gig. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, anytime we've ever talked about women in the workplace in whatever field, whatever industry, I mean, like flexible hours and childcare and things like that and pay, those are all really important issues to anyone, but especially to a woman who might not have considered this non-traditional employment before. And that was something, too, that we heard from in one story we were reading about a woman who had gotten her master's, I believe, in civil engineering at Columbia and was really attracted to construction in particular, working on construction sites because you start really early and you also end relatively early and mm-hmm. it matches really well with kids' school hours. Mm-hmm. So it can be a really feasible job for working moms. Um, but speaking of working moms and women, Let's turn our attention to women's employment in construction. So this is also coming from OSHA, as well as a 2014 report from the National Women's Law Center. And we mentioned at the top of this episode that the stats are pretty dismal. And that's because women make up only 2.6% of construction workers. And that number has barely changed in 35 years, even after in the mid-70s, the U.S. federal government was like, hey, we could really use more women in construction. Let's try to get this number up to 6.9%. But it's still 
so stagnant. Yeah, and it's also interesting when you consider that women's ranks in other quote-unquote dirty and dangerous jobs like firefighting and being a correctional officer has way increased. I mean, it's still not up to where proportionally it should be in terms of the number of women in the workplace and the women in our population at large. But they have increased. Kristen and I did uh, a firefighting episode a couple years ago and looking at that very thing. And then, of course, though, when you break it down according to race and ethnicity, the stats are even worse for women of color. So if you look at all of the women working in construction... About three quarters of them are white, non-Hispanic women coming in second at 14.6 percent are Hispanic women and African-American women are 6.7 percent. Asian Pacific Islander women make up 2.8 percent of the industry, women in the industry and coming in last place are American Indian or Alaskan Native workers who are 2.1 percent. But it is interesting to note, according to that uh, Law Center report, that based on their numbers in the overall workforce, white women are actually over represented and black women are underrepresented in the construction industry. But regardless of ethnicity, women are more likely to be concentrated in office jobs in the construction industry and are way less likely to be in skilled or unskilled labor intensive positions. And you might be thinking, well, that makes sense because women have lesser upper body strength. They can't lift those giant steel beams into ceilings. I've clearly never built a building before. Single handedly. Paul Bunyan. (laughs) That's how how buildings are built, right? Paulette Bunyan. People just lifting things into place. But, um, in fact, the construction equipment technology has been developed as such and, and also best practices on the construction site that you don't actually have to exert as much physical strength as you would think. If you're doing things correctly, yeah. then yes, you could have a woman with an average woman's upper body strength doing even that unskilled labor intensive kind of work. Uh, but by the way, the industry's office workers make less on average, though, than the construction laborers. So this gets into another wrinkle because construction can be lucrative, mm-hmm. but we continue to be relegated to these lower paying positions. Yeah, of course. And then you've got to look at the part of the pipeline where women are actually getting trained and developing and maintaining interest in the industry. And that's in apprenticeship programs. In fiscal year 2012, women made up 6.3% of all active apprentices in federal apprenticeship programs, but they made up just 2.2% of active apprentices in the construction industry specifically. And it gets worse because we're also less likely to finish our apprenticeship programs. I mean, everybody, men and women alike, face issues like financial insecurity and, you know, just finding it. Maybe it's not the thing you're interested in or it's too hard or you develop a different interest in the field and that's fine. But women also shoulder issues related to gender discrimination. And so if you look at carpenter apprenticeships specifically, Women's dropout rate is especially high there. 70% of women in carpenter apprenticeships drop out versus 53% of men. And that stinks because carpenters are among both the highest paid and the highest skilled construction workers. And you know what, Caroline? I've realized I'm part of the problem (laughs) because I encouraged a six-year-old little girl to pretend to be a model instead of a construction worker. Maybe she can be a construction princess. 
I, I think she wants nothing to do with Princess, which is awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> she will make a lot more money because <laughs> I don't think princesses make a thing. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to get into... Some of the reasons why it is so hard to attract and retain women in the construction industry. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. So in the first half of the podcast, we established, A, that I can be a bad feminist aunt sometimes, and B, <laughs> that the, the numbers of women in construction are lower than they should be. So we want to look at the barriers to women, not only entering the field, but also remaining in the field. And this is where some of the most startling research we ran across comes up because the biggest factor, the, the most glaring statistic is the rate of sexual harassment on the job. And again, this is coming from OSHA and also that 2014 report from the National Women's Law Center. And this is the statistic that blew my mind. 88% of women construction workers, according to data from the Department of Labor, experience sexual harassment at work compared to 25% of women in the general workforce. 88 Percent, And you know that's a low estimate. I feel like the 12% are just people who aren't especially curvy and have short hair, so they might simply appear male like that's <laughs> because it's so high. Yeah, it's mind-blowing, especially when you compare it to the overall workforce number. And the reason I said you know that that's a low number is just because in that fascinating, which even if you're not interested in the construction industry, I recommend you read that National Women's Law Center report because of the horrifying quotes that are in it. They they talk to a lot of women in the industry who reported terrible things like uh, one statistic. Uh, there was a study that found 57 percent of respondents had been touched, physically touched or asked for sex, like actually sex just being requested in one way or another. And so many of the women that this report talked to and other studies cited were saying things like, 
Yeah, you know, it's just, it's kind of not even productive to report this stuff because I'm more likely to be fired. <sighs> well, and a lot of times, too, they're going to be the only woman on the construction site, and so they don't feel like they have anyone they can really turn to as well because right. they're having to prove themselves and don't want to... You know, it's like they they want to be tough, but at the same time, where's the line when you are being actually touched or directly asked for sex? And this kind of harassment or workplace hazing was something, too, that was echoed in our podcast on women in firefighting. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a story about Brenda Berkman, who was the first female firefighter with uh, the, the New York City Fire Department, who reported just continual hazing. It wasn't so much sexual harassment, but mm-hmm. things like, what did they do to her boots? They like urinated in her her work boots mm-hmm. and would just do, every day it was a new thing. They would find her bra and like stretch it out across multiple lockers. Um, and it's not just though sexual harassment. There's also discrimination going on, uh, saving higher paying jobs for men, just general hostility. That's another factor too when you have these Heavily male-dominated workplaces and the idea that a woman walking in onto the work site Mm -hmm. is just going to ruin everything. Well, yeah, one woman told a story in terms of hostility about, you know, her job was to come along behind other workers. And as they started things, she would, I don't know, she would finish it, basically. But she said that she had to learn how to do everything backwards before she learned to do it the right way because the men that were going before her were purposely putting things on backwards. And if she had moved something or it had flown off and hit her in the face, like there could have been serious injuries. So she always had to be triple careful. And of course, there's also the issue of lack of mentors. If there's not enough women in construction, then surely there's not going to be enough female mentors sort of guiding and providing advice. And then women grappling with stereotyped assumptions about their own abilities. Restricted access to sanitary toilets is a big one. Not just like having a a clean and safe place to go to the bathroom, but actually a clean and safe place to deal with the fact that you have a period every month. Yeah, that was another aspect of this that I had not thought about Mm -hmm. at all. I take my work bathroom and it's clean, you know, that clean private space so much for granted. And the building that uh, Caroline and I work in is currently going through a lot of construction. And I was driving in today and past a construction porta potty and just thought about, oh, my God, I bet it's I bet that's a nightmare if there are any women construction mm-hmm. workers who have to use that because it did look, I mean, just on the outside look disgusting. Yeah. Well, one woman interviewed in that, uh, 2014 report was talking about how, like, yeah, porta potties can be gross and a lot of coworkers will on purpose make it disgusting to mess with her. But there's also the issue of like, if you're out on a site or, you know, you're somewhere that you're not close to a porta potty or a bathroom and other guys are just peeing in the ditch or peeing behind a tree, like you also have to do that, but you're also being watched. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this was another thing that came up uh, in that firefighting episode. Mm -hmm. That was another, another big thing that these women were needing. In addition to things like properly fitting protective equipment and clothing, because as you can imagine, with only 2.6% of construction workers being women, almost everything universally down to the tools and gloves are sized for a male body. Right. And so, you know, God help you if you're wearing a jacket, a protective jacket that's too long and your sleeve gets caught in some equipment. 
There's also the whole issue of poor on-the-job training. Uh, the report really hammered home. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Um, the report really hammered home the fact that a lot of safety information and really general information about how to do things is passed along during this informal on-the-job training that workers provide each other. Like, hey, don't do it like this. Do it like this. This is the easier way. This is the better way. A lot of women end up being barred from that informal process just thanks to hostility. Yeah, there was one anecdote we were reading about um, a, a civil engineering major who was going through an internship and there were a couple of other women and some dudes going through this internship as well. And the first day on the job, the, the site manager took the guys off to go do the hands on kind of stuff and sent the women to the office. Yeah. It's just like automatic. Yeah, that the women weren't. Not only doing the, you know, quote unquote bonding, the informal mentorship, but they missed out on all of that how to stuff that was being passed along. Well, and then, too, when dealing with clients, a client walks in to a contractor's office and sees, you know, a, a woman who is in charge, but just assumes that she must be the office manager. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then add to this the fact that a lot of women have to deal with actual threats of violence and death. And this was cited in several reports that we looked at. Ten percent of women in one survey said that they'd experienced threats of violence by coworkers and or supervisors, not just coworkers on their same level, but just seemingly everyone around them. And then when it comes to wages as well, we mentioned that, first of all, um, women are usually diverted to lower paying office jobs. But even if you are a project manager, a study that came out in 2014 in the International Journal of Construction, Education and Research found that female project manager salaries, as opposed to male project manager salaries, were negatively affected if they are married with kids at home. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of different factors that could potentially be at play there, but it doesn't change the fact that they're doing the same job and taking home less money. And so what does all of this lead up to? Well, understandably, there's a sense of isolation. 22% of women in one survey said that they have never worked with another woman. Yeah, and then this adds to this chronic stress that so many women report. You end up being sick more often, you're more distracted, and therefore more likely to get hurt. And of course, like we mentioned earlier, you've got that lack of reporting issue. Your job security is already tenuous at best. You feel vulnerable. And as one woman said, reporting isn't always possible, nor is it productive. And all three of these things just sort of compound each other and make each element worse. Yeah, um, there was an anecdote from one woman who I think now owns or co-owns a contracting business who was asked about how she deals with being a woman in this heavily male-dominated field. And she was essentially like, I simply don't put up with it. Mm. If, But but that, I think that that's probably easier to do when you're the boss <laughs> rather than, you know, she might have been saying something different when she was first starting out. But uh, it was it was interesting to see how she was just like, no, I have no time for that. And I will let that be known if someone tries to make my sex an issue. Right. Well, I mean, just beyond the oh, I don't know, the death threats and the sexual harassment. There is, as Kristen pointed out earlier, a very real 
risk in terms of injury, illness, and death that comes along with working in the construction industry. And a couple of different studies have shown that it is the the risk is higher for women, especially, you know, it's it's not only just the job itself, but it could be a consequence of poor training or coworker hostility. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hazing period rarely stops for these women, and their strength and ability are constantly being tested, and help often refused. It's like that woman you were talking about who has to learn the work backwards because mm-hmm. she knows that things are going to be put on poorly on purpose to set her up. Yeah, and the OSHA report quotes a female construction worker who said, women injure themselves more than the men because they refuse help and they're not allowed to ask for help. And it's a much bigger deal if a woman asks for help. So if you look back uh, into the 80s and 90s, uh, the American Journal of Industrial Medicine put out a report in 1998 that examined the deaths of 139 female construction workers between 1980 and 1992 and found that motor vehicles and machinery are the first and second leading causes of occupational injury death for women. And so they compared female workers in transportation and material moving with male workers and found that those female workers had a 59% and 85% higher mortality rate from motor vehicles and machinery, respectively. And they, they found more and more stats like this in terms of women being like out in the road as flaggers, basically qualifying as pedestrians, that a woman in that position is way more likely to get killed or severely injured than a man is. And women's higher risk of injury was confirmed in a 2008 study on women in a heavy manufacturing setting like smelting. And that's coming from the American Journal of Epidemiology. And you might be saying a heavy manufacturing setting isn't necessarily the same thing as a construction industry. But they found that this risk really applied to jobs, a lot of related jobs like crane operators, machinists, mechanical and electrical maintenance, machine operators and mobile equipment operators. I'd also like to know who that know-it-all construction (laughs) industry expert listening to this podcast is. I know they might need some nose spray. They sound awfully nasal. (laughs) And that study, though, found that female workers are at a greater risk of all injuries across the board compared to male workers. And while not as statistically significant, female workers also appear to be at a greater risk of sustaining injuries that result in lost work time. So what's the deal? Well, there are a few ideas. Historically, in heavy manufacturing industries, tools, equipment, work surface heights, and workstations were, again, designed for men of average size because they were the ones usually doing the work. Um, It also cites studies that mention the possibility of women receiving less on-the-job training, which is another factor that we brought up before. So it's not the, the assumption that, well, women simply aren't cut out for this kind of work is not necessarily accurate. There are all sorts of environmental issues happening as well. Yeah, so many environmental issues that we've just covered that would make you feel unsafe in your job. And and women who, you know, in some of these reports who talked about, I was so 
just like chronically stressed out and on guard for all of this behavior that I constantly was confronted with that I found myself tripping over things all the time, dropping things all the time, because you're not focused on your work if you're so focused on just trying to get by and protect yourself. And you're having to wear like massive gloves that don't fit your hands. Um, You had mentioned the pipeline issue, though, Caroline. This is something that comes up a lot in STEM fields. And, And it is important to note, too, like construction is a STEM field. That's the big E, the engineering, is where construction fits in with all of this. But it's not just an issue of a leaky pipeline. The entire pipeline is clogged, starting with education, because in career and technical education programs, young women are often subtly encouraged or just explicitly steered into occupations that align with traditional gender stereotypes, like princess, apparently. (laughs) Instead of being encouraged to enter traditionally male programs, such as construction or like the carpentry example. Yeah, exactly. And so women and girls who end up in these so-called non-traditional career and technical education programs report facing harassment, differential treatment, and all of these things end up combining to discourage them from entering or staying in these fields. And these programs, as a result, end up highly gender segregated with female students ending up being being concentrated in low-wage, traditionally female fields. You you know, a lot of people, and I can't blame them, are just not willing to put up with abuse like that. Yeah, and we have to talk, too, about the importance of apprenticeships with these kinds of jobs. Um, It it makes sense that you, I mean, that's how you learn these kinds of hands-on trades. And this is the traditional path to these high-paying jobs and these kinds of, this kind of skilled trade or construction work. And especially if you're going for the higher paying work. But entry into these apprenticeships depends on knowing how, when, and where to apply. And this kind of information is often held by current construction workers, most of whom are guys. And female construction workers have actually termed this the friends, brothers, and in-laws network. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the old boys club in a different sort of way. It's the old boys construction site or wood shopping shed. (laughs) And we mentioned earlier that 70% dropout rate that women experience uh, in the carpenter apprenticeship specifically. But between 2006 and 2007, 51% of women left their apprenticeship programs overall, citing sexual harassment, hazing, and outright hostility from men who see them as intruders. And so not only that, not only all this abuse that's being hurled at them, but also just the lack of childcare. that if a lot of women are maybe uh, going through school for the first time or going back for another career, if you have a family already and you can't do anything with your kids, like we've talked about in so many other fields, that is a big inhibitor for a lot of women. And then, of course, you also have the issue that apprentices typically end up getting hired by experienced tradesmen who have to offer to formally supervise them. So you've got to have somebody kind of like a mentor who is willing to step up and be like, I will vouch for this person. I will train him or her. You know, I will guide this person and end up hiring them. But as we've seen, it's not so hard to imagine that there are just not a lot of men out there who are willing to put in that time and energy that's required to mentor, guide, and eventually hire someone if that someone is a woman. Yeah, I mean, and it it might just not occur to them as much because this is going back again to the guild systems. You know, this is sort of how it has always been. And we've really only been 
taking concerted efforts to crack this nut for the past, say, 30 years. Yeah. Versus <laughs> just centuries, centuries and centuries. Um, and so all this adds up to today, that small number of women in the field, which again limits those mentorship opportunities. And there's something called checkerboarding, which is the practice of sending tradeswomen to a construction site just to show that they're meeting gender and or race quotas and goals. And then once those quotas are met, the women are often fired. So talk about some tokenism happening big time. And also there's the aspect of saving money because journey worker tradeswomen will say that contractors who want to meet gender quotas will often hire apprentices because they're cheaper. Even cheaper. Even cheaper. Yeah. Well, so we've we've hinted throughout this episode about why it is such a big deal that women are not essentially being permitted in into the construction industry at large. And, you know, it's not just like we're sitting here worried about women not being able to follow their construction dreams like your niece, Kristen. It's the fact that construction industry jobs can provide such better pay and career opportunities than traditional, quote unquote, woman's work. And so if you look at that pipeline, I mean, the effect alone of not completing an apprenticeship, man or woman, is that you're going to end up making less over the course of your career. And similarly, locking women out of certain jobs, whether in the construction industry or in the workforce at large, locks them out of the opportunity to make more money. Yeah, the median hourly wage for construction occupations in 2013 was $19.55, which is roughly double the median hourly wage for female-dominated occupations like home health aides, maids, housekeepers, and child care workers. And then when you look at the women who do actually make it through all of that hazing, all of that abuse, they end up experiencing a smaller wage gap than do women in the overall workforce. <laughs> Although there still is a wage gap, let's just say that. Uh, women in construction make 89% of what men in construction make, Versus 82% of what men make across the whole labor force. So essentially, if you can make it through, mm-hmm. then the wage gap, the gender wage gap is at least narrower. So, I mean, economically, there are lots of potential benefits in here. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of recommendations being made, especially because there are women who are leading the charge within the industry to say, okay, we, we need right. to do something about this. And all of these reports that we've been citing have also offered a number of recommendations, such as strengthening affirmative action requirements. Although I wonder, I mean, I feel like that's only going to take you so far because of practices like checkerboarding mm-hmm. um, and then raising target numbers for female hires. Again, in 1978, that was the year um, when there was that federal goal of 6.9% established, which was based on the overall percent of women in the workforce at the time. And so industry leaders are saying we need to adjust that even higher, way higher, because there are more women working than there were in 1978. Yeah, exactly. They also recommend, of course, strengthening sexual harassment policies and improving or requiring training, better training, engaging in better outreach and recruitment of both women and minorities, and encouraging unions to take a more active role in sexual harassment prevention training. I mean, that seems to be the huge sticking point out of all of this is, I mean, aside from the death threats, um, just the fact that so many women are experiencing sexual harassment. 
And there are hardworking groups stepping in, like the National Association of Women in Construction, Professional Women in Construction, and New York's Non-Traditional Employment for Women, who are helping to organize women, offering these mentorship opportunities, um, at least giving them a place to turn to when they're dealing with these kinds of issues in the workplace. Yeah, there was a, an Associated Press story from September 2014 that sort of profiled new. It's a nonprofit, and they have arrangements actually with several unions to take women directly into their multi-year apprenticeships at a starting wage of around $17 plus benefits once they complete the training. And after four or five years, these women can attain journeyman status with hourly pay of $40 or more. So it's it's great that you have a group like New partnering with those super important unions to sort of shepherd women through. Not that women need shepherding, but almost to act as a sort of bulldozer to to get women into the field making those great paychecks. Yeah, and uh, to that end, the Department of Labor also announced in December 2014 that they were making $100 million in grants available to expand apprenticeship programs in high-skilled, high-growth industries like construction, and that was actually on the heels of an earlier announcement of $1.9 million in grants being made available to support women in non-traditional jobs to complete apprenticeships. So the good news is is that efforts are being made to correct this. But there is, I mean, 2.6 is mighty low, you know, and there are still so many, so many factors. I mean, it's an entire culture change that needs to occur. I mean, I I can't get inside anyone else's brain as much as I try, um, but it just seems insane to me that you would look at a woman and consider her such a threat that you would feel the need to threaten her, constantly trip her up, both literally and figuratively, um, try to make her life a living hell, essentially, because because why? There was actually an interesting paper looking at that, specifically within the construction industry in the UK. Mm-hmm. And what they, the conclusion this researcher came to had to do a lot, actually, with class mm-hmm. and masculinity constructs in terms of, you know, this this has this particular sector has a specific appeal to a specific class sector of men who take a lot of pride in their work and also sort of having having that space to themselves and the kind of sort of power that it gives them. And unfortunately, and, it, and it's not just and it's not just men. There are lots of sociocultural factors that feed into that and that breed this kind of unhealthy machismo that can end up endangering women's lives on construction sites because of these kinds of uh, class laden power dynamics at work. So it's complicated to put it very eloquently it is complicated it it is a definite multi-layer experience <laughs> and it does seem like too really the the brightest shining star the the, the example who comes up over and over again of a, a woman leader in this field who's also um, a maker you've probably heard us talk about makers before you can it, it, makers.com profiles all of these incredible women and linda alvarado who is a leader in the construction industry is is one of those people and she's always advocating for women in this field. 
Yeah. So, so let's hear from, I know you're out there. Let's hear from women who are in construction and related industries. Have you been interested in the industry and have been sort of reticent to actually dive in? You know, we want to hear your experiences. Yeah. And I'm curious, especially for engineering students who are interested in getting into these kinds of fields too. Is there any acknowledgement of these kinds of gender dynamics happening within the classroom too like are you are you being prepped for this or not we want to know what's happening mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us at mom stuff podcast or message us on facebook and in our next podcast we're going to take a step back from construction and look at building design focusing in on women architects so be sure to tune in for that one in the meantime we've got a couple of letters to read when we come right back from a quick break across america bp supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like updating turbines at one of our indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the gulf of mexico It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. And now back to the show. I have a letter here from Amrika talking about men and feminism. She says, first of all, let me thank you for providing me with abundant, stimulating, informative and entertaining material with which to spend the many long haul flights and waiting time in airport terminals. That is my current pretty awesome life. I think the work you're doing on the podcast is nothing short of a brilliant contribution to birthing a new era of feminists. Since I discovered the podcast, I have also reawakened as a feminist. I am consequently outraged on a more regular basis and sharing that with others, but also having more fun. Gosh, Amrika, thank you. Uh, She writes, I've also shared the podcast with a few good guy friends of mine, and they are all enjoying it very much. It's great because it gives us new things to talk about, deepens our friendships in new ways, and I can almost hear their eyes creaking open just a little wider. A WhatsApp message I received today after one was apparently listening to a history of panties read, now I understand the rag reference. They seem to be enjoying you both as personalities as well. That's why I'd like to propose for a future podcast or three that you pick up the growing engagement of men and feminism. In light of Gamergate, campus rapes, 
female genital mutilation, ISIS, and the myriad atrocities leveled at women in just today's Twitter feed, it gives me hope to have strong, solid male friends in my life who want to do more but don't know how, and to think about all those men like them who stand in solidarity even if it's silently. I'd like to see those courageous voices amplified and celebrated and encouraged wherever possible because we need them, and we, female feminists, need to make it safe for more of them to enter the fray. Thanks for all you do, and thank you for your letter. Yeah, I love that idea. And listeners, if you have suggestions for a great male feminist thought leader we could talk to, suggestions, we welcome them. Uh, that was a weird syntax to put that in. I've got a letter here from Laura about our bronies episode from a while back. She said, I want to thank you for your geek girl episodes. Women in cartooning and comics were both amazing. I also love your cosplay episode and can't wait for more geek girl pods. The brony episode really hit home with me. I'm a Pegasister from way back in the beginning and love the newest cartoon. It's beautifully animated and the stories teach very valuable lessons. About a week before the episode aired, I met a mother of a young brony who tried to explain the merits of the show to me, and I could only smile at her and say, I know, I watched a show. I'm glad to know her three-year-old son will grow into a caring, compassionate man one day because of the lessons of My Little Pony, and I only wish I could have recommended your podcast to her. Thanks for the wonderful podcast and keep up the good work. And she said, P.S., loved the clitoracy episode, but couldn't get past the title of the squirting episode. <laughs> LOL. Hey, don't let the, don't let the word squirting scare you, Laura. We promise if you liked the clitoracy episode, you'll love the squirting episode. Yeah, it's almost a clitoracy follow-up, mm-hmm. so you you can do it. We promise. But if you have letters to send to us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, with this one including links to all of those studies about women in construction, if you want to read more, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. 
Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.